Hey everyone, welcome back to Navigating Netflix Originals. As always, I'm Madison, and as always, I am joined by Jamie. <laughs> that is me. <laughs> um, so, welcome back. It's been a couple of weeks since we've posted and recorded anything for you guys. Um, that was due to some traveling on some one of our parts and some family issues injuries on my part that yeah. i had to deal with so we weren't around to to do a recording but we are back how are you guys <laughs> good i hope jamie how are you i'm just swell how are you madison oh doing pretty good um so today as a as a, a welcome back podcast episode we thought we would thoroughly depress you all <laughs> and talk about a very kind of depressing and sad, but also super informative and important documentary called Breaking Boundaries, The Science of Our Planet. And yes. if there's any Planet Earth fans out there, David Attenborough is a big part of narrating and talking during this documentary. And he's partnered with a Swedish scientist who has been studying basically like what the breaking points are for this planet. Like we, as a, as a species, are putting a lot of pressure onto a lot of different aspects of this planet. And the scientist, whose name I did not write down. <laughs> the, the, the main guy, Johan yeah. something. Something yes. Strum. <laughs> he, he has been studying for, for many years, him and his colleagues, on like what, what are the breaking points? How much more of this can we do before we basically pass the point of no return and we're never yeah. going to be able to recover from the damage that we've done to the planet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yes, what what were your initial thoughts on watching this documentary? Yeah, um, I thought it was very informative. It was interesting to see all of these sort of different aspects, the nine different contributing factors or whatever, um, right. kind of all explained and um, well described um, and to see it all in one place was very interesting just to see what things we do have an impact on what and and what we can do to sort of reduce each one of those into the safer zone or whatever is right. is very interesting um, it is as you say a bit depressing and I mean we're in the red for so many of the things so it's kind of yeah. <laughs> difficult but still very informative yes um, so this this type of documentary is like my jam. I, I have watched everything that David Attenborough has ever produced, I think. And I've been just studying the science and following climate change for a lot of years because it's something that very like it's this it's going to impact this generation, guys. We're millennials. We can't kick this down the road to anybody else that's going to affect us while we are alive yeah. and what our generation decides to do about it now within the next 10 years is going to determine how it affects us down the line. All right. um, it's not looking great for us to be honest, but there is a little bit of hope, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, yes, I, I, I watched this documentary twice. Um, and I, I absolutely, I love that they talked about even things that I hadn't like thought about or heard about, like the level of nutrients in the soil from, yeah. from, I knew over fertilization was like a problem, but I didn't really understand how and why. And they, they talked about that a, a good deal. But yeah. um, of course, the main one that they focus on was climate and what climate change and the global temperature rise is doing to our planet. But right. 
Yeah. So, so like, let's just say I'll t- tell everybody quick what the nine sure. boundaries I identified are for our planet. And there are, there are three where we're considered to be in the green zone or the safe zone still. And that is on freshwater, ozone and ocean acid acidification. Mm-hmm. Um, but all three of those are, of course, getting progressively worse. Yeah. <laughs> but like, we are still in the green zone on them. And then there's two that we are have moved past the green zone and into the danger zone that they qualify with a yellow stripe, and that's on climate and forest loss. <clears throat> and then we've got somewhere between two and four that are in the red zone. Um, the two that are certainly in the red zone are biodiversity and nutrients slash overfertilization. And then they have two boundaries that they've identified. Um, one is air pollution, and then one is all other pollutions combined. And they don't really know where the boundaries are in those yet because there's nothing like to look back on historically. There's never been a species that has polluted the planet the way that we have. Right. So they don't really know where those boundaries are and where the breaking points in them might be. But uh, they're not very optimistic that we're not in the red. <laughs> no, <laughs> like I mean, they've already gone too far with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially with, I think, air pollution, they made a point of saying that, you know, the air pollution has already killed like 7.5 million people. Right. So that's pretty, pretty bad for already you know. really bad. We shouldn't, we should stop it. Yeah. Basically. And then immediately. Yeah. And then with like other man-made pollutants, like we read all the time about how like bits of plastic are washing up in fish and stuff because oh, yeah. it's so polluted. So it's well, not, that can't be good for us. And and I heard on one of the many documentaries <laughs> that I've watched about this, that every person in like the modern world consumes a credit card's worth of microplastic every year in just in waters in foods in it's in everything like microscopic little bits of plastic so that's great (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's something like you know we could easily like reduce and oh yeah get out of you know the system but well i don't know if we can get it out of our system but out of circulation in the planet but but I mean, can we, or have we passed know. that point where like we can't clean up the amount of microplastic in the ocean? There is no filter that we have that takes it out of anything. Right. <laughs> so like, maybe we have already passed that breaking point, and until the plastic actually completely decomposes and however many umpteen hundred many years that takes, right? You know, well, I guess we could stop putting more in, but like I don't know that we could get what's there out. Basically, is what I'm trying to ramble about. Right. (laughs) I mean, as they made a point of saying at one point during the documentary, though, it's kind of like, you know, if we treat the each of these crises or like this collective crisis um, as a crisis, it's very easy to throw any amount of money at it and solve it. It's just the fact that like in our society today, there are so many people, especially those with money who just don't care or aren't believers or whatever. And so, you know, money that they could be spending towards helping the planet, they're doing they're like going into space and like random things like this, but <laughs> yeah, you know, like billionaires just spending ten billion dollars to shoot themselves into space for four minutes. Right. When they stop doing that and start investing ten million, ten billion dollars into saving the planet, you know, that's when real change will actually happen. Right. <laughs> but until then. Um, but yeah, they, they used um, the ozone layer as an example of how, like, in yeah. the past, the world has worked together 
on like when they identified a large hole over Antarctica in the ozone layer in the 1980s, all, all the like a lot of different countries around the world came together and signed agreements that they would stop using chemicals that were known to be destroying the ozone layer. So like they have they can do it, yeah. <laughs> but there's just there's so many issues now. It's not like with the ozone layer, it was one thing they kind of came together and and said we can stop using this list of chemicals. But there's there's so many things that just like it's just almost overwhelming to think about the amount of change that would actually have to happen yeah so like well as they said like just in order to get us to like a safe space we basically need to all of us cut our emissions in half for the next every decade for the next three decades or something and like just imagining that happening is not going to i just don't foresee that happening you know even if even if we do it on an individual level like it's not it's not going to be enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when you were watching the documentary, mm-hmm. which one of the the nine boundaries do you think like surprised or, or terrified you the most? I don't know if terrified, but surprised was probably honestly the biodiversity. Because okay. I didn't yeah. realize to what extent like so many species are like either not actually wild anymore. Like I think they said that only 4% of mammals are wild now. It was it was. By weight on the planet, right. um, wild mammals only make up 4% of the total weight of mammals which on is, the planet. Which is just it, crazy talk. Yeah. And that just shows they're 96% of all the total weight of mammals on the planet is, are in, in industrialized farms. Like, right. Or I guess a small percentage of them are probably pets, but most of it <laughs> is industrialized farms. <laughs> right, especially when you consider the fact that like whales and stuff, which are the heaviest mammals, are in that free zone. You know, the right. free, you know, presumably. And a lot of, there's a lot of elephants in that free zone too. You know, a lot of things that weigh a lot more than a cow. We just are producing billions of them every year and killing them. It's so crazy. Yeah. So that shocked me. And I think in that description as well, they mentioned the fact that in the UK, they, in the 1990s, they actually like snuck over into, I don't know if they snuck into Sweden, but they went to some other country to steal um, short haired bumblebee queens so they could right. repopulate their own population of bumblebees. Yeah. I was like, geez, that's intense. Yeah. That, that was what happens before the episode of Black Mirror where they create yeah. robots. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I wrote down another figure, which was 68% of global wildlife population has been wiped out in the last 50 years. Yeah. Like that. that that's new. Because like once it reaches 75%, that's when we're considered to be in a mass extinction. Right. So like very close to being like what they will historically consider a mass extinction on the planet. I knew that figure going into it. So oh. I knew biodiversity was bad. I didn't realize how bad. But um, I think the one that surprised me most was the nutrients and, yeah. and just the fact that it's already in the red and it, I just he- was hearing about it for the first time in this documentary. Yeah, I think is what scared me about it was like, I've never even heard of, you know, all the damage that over fertilizing things is causing, mostly in killing off um, lakes and oceans and seas. Yeah. You know, creating essentially like dead zones in in our oceans. Mm-hmm. Um that can span tens of thousands of square kilometers, according to my notes. <laughs> yeah. And also the um, the fertilizer runoff and stuff was also increasing the ocean acidification, right? 
like they were kind of linked, I think. Yeah, yeah, it was linked to that. The ocean acidification was one of the ones that's still in the green, but it's getting worse probably because of the nutrient, the over-nutrient yeah. run. And we see um, that and they mentioned the algae, the algal blooms or whatever. And we do see that like more and more like beaches closed because there's too much algae and stuff, which right. is, you know, likely a direct um, result of that. Yeah. Um, and then they said, you know, that once ocean acidification or like water acidification, I guess, starts, it's kind of like a cycle that just kind of keeps, you know, perpetuating, perpetuating oh, itself. Yeah. yeah. Which is. Yeah. Scary. And they said. Like at this point, and this figure was surprising, that it's the ocean is already twenty six percent more acidic than it was a few decades ago. Yeah. Which that's like a high percentage to me, <laughs> and to still be in the green zone, that like it's increased, you know, twenty six percent in three decades seems like a bad thing. Yeah, that's not but, a good thing. I can't imagine. No, and in like in geological history, when you study the world over like the past millions of years, like ocean acidification has always corresponded with mass extinctions on the planet. Oh. So like those, and that was something that they said in this documentary as well. So like looking at like that as a warning sign, like the oceans are starting to become right. more, that's always been something that corresponded with mass extinctions. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's wild. Not looking for us, guys. No, it's really not. Um, but in in good news, we're still good on fresh water. I mean, for now, yeah. Yeah, that actually surprised me. I was expecting fresh water to be in the yellow at least. Yeah. Um, but I guess I guess it sort of makes sense, um, just because of the amount of rivers and lakes that we have on this planet. But. I, guess, I just I was thinking there's so many places that seem to be like in drought or needing right. fresh water. So I just thought it was worse than it is, but it's not. Yeah. Well, and I guess like the thing about fresh water that was interesting and that I think I, I knew, but just to see it again was surprising is like just how much of fresh water we use for our mass growing of crops, like industrialized farming. Yeah. Essentially. And I was which just makes you think like we really need to revamp some things here, but yeah, um, yeah. They said in in the documentary that every person on the planet requires three thousand liters of water to stay alive each day, and like obviously we're not drinking three thousand liters of water each yeah. day, or we don't be dead. But but for the way that we live our lives, in washing our clothes and and washing our dishes, and the amount of water that goes into producing the fruits and the vegetables, and especially the meat that we consume in this society, the amount of water a cow requires to produce, you know, a pound of steak. Is steak measured in pounds? Ounces of steak. <laughs> <laughs> Ounces, yeah. There you go. I don't eat meat, but um, yeah, like that's just that's a lot of water that we need that we're using every yeah. day. And at least, at least for like consumption of fresh water, there are things that, you know, they mentioned that we could tangibly do like reducing your meat consumption will, you know, reduce the amount of fresh water you're consuming. Um, and also like in terms of washing, you know, I feel like, especially in the U S perhaps like we are obsessed with washing our clothes, like all the time. Um, right. And it's like, that's why sometimes jeans now, uh, have like a little tag in them that's like you know wear me several times before washing to save water consumption and stuff so you know i think we need I probably to don't really do that i would imagine no probably not but i always try to like you know 
wear my jeans and stuff very well before I wash them. Um, we want them nice and ripe before they go into the exactly. washing machine. <laughs> um, yeah, what are the other ones? Okay, so we've got we've got forest loss, and, and we should probably save climate change for last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So forest, forest loss. Um, they. Oh, sorry. I'm talking over you. Go ahead. Forest loss. Um. They primarily talk about like the destruction of the Amazon rainforest when you think of, of forest lost and yeah. because that's our, our biggest area in, of, of rainforest on the planet is the Amazon. And the Amazon is in worse shape than I realized. <laughs> yeah. I had not heard of the term savannization, uh-huh. uh, which is like when the rainforest goes longer than four months um, in their dry season and the tr- rainforest trees actually start to die and you get these big sections that turn back to grasslands, basically, because there's not enough water to support a rainforest environment. Yeah. And the, the documentary they talked about how this is like one of those problems that will starts to make itself worse to perpetuate itself as it goes because the more area that is turned into savannah then the less able the rainforest is to produce its own climate and its own weather because it's having these big swatches of it that are essentially removed plus we're going in and cutting trees out of it constantly to grow livestock and soybeans on right And and savannization, when all these trees are dying, it's also releasing billions of tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which is like the exact opposite of what we need to have happen. Right. What we need to have happen is just mass planting of trees to yes. pull it out of the of the air. Yes. Yeah. Um, we. That's like, and they talk about that at the end. That like one of the cheapest and most efficient ways to cut our carbon emissions would be to plant trees. Trees are giant carbon absorbing sponges. That's like what they do is take carbon in and produce oxygen. So we need to stop getting rid of the trees that we have and we need to start planting a ton more of them all over the place. Yeah. And more than just on Arbor Day. Yeah. It's more than once a year, like plant a tree every day, make it like a, a habit, a hobby that you just work into your morning routine. There you <laughs> go. Plant a tree and go to work. <laughs> just like old Johnny Appleseed. Yeah. Well, no, I think he cut trees down. We want to go the other way. Oh, that's true. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. yeah, no, that was crazy to see. Just, yeah. I mean, it's all kind of like once it reaches a certain point, it's this really, um, you know, self-perpetuating cycle of terrible effects right and and a lot of like how they talk about like this green yellow and red category is very arbitrary um like the ones that are in the green date the scientists like feel relatively confident to say are safe but once we pass into that yellow zone that's them saying like at any point we could pass the tipping point we don't know where it is we know that it's after this point after where the green ends but it could be you know just a couple steps into the yellow we don't really know and the further into the yellow you get that's when you know they qualify it as red then because it's like well we're definitely must be getting close to to the tipping point to to the point of no return kind of thing right um i think that from especially with some of the aspects of climate change like we have already passed the point of no return for for some of the things like Greenland's ice sheet. Yeah, it's not like yeah, it's not like we're going to refreeze the water. Right. <laughs> and and that so talking about climate change um or yeah, about climate change and Greenland's ice sheet, um they said that Greenland is losing 10,000 cubic meters of ice per second 
on yeah. average. So this you know, massive, like the whole country is this giant iceberg almost. And the whole country is just melting away. And it's to a point where so enough of it is melted now that even if we did all the right things to you know, stop and reverse climate change, it's kind of too late for Greenland. Greenland is still going to melt at this point, even if we can save other areas. We can't refreeze Greenland at this point. Right. And I think they said that there's maybe some, as long as we get the temperature under control, there's maybe some hope for Antarctica. But like the quantity right. of, of water that would be put into the oceans and stuff, if that melts, would just be <laughs> catastrophic and we would lose probably all of our coastal cities. I mean, Greenland's already going to have yeah. a dramatic effect. When Greenland is completely melted, it's going to raise the Earth's sea levels. It's estimated by seven meters around the world. Yeah. So any coastal city is already going to be losing large parts of its coast. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if, if anybody in this podcast is living near the ocean, they might want to consider that. <laughs> yeah. Me included. Yes, you included. <laughs> Um, but yeah, one of the things they, they, I knew that like ice reflected sunlight back, but they gave the exact figures that like ice sheets reflect back 90 to 95% of all the yeah. suns that hits it, which is why like losing them is causing, you know, it's one of those things that perpetuates itself again. Like the more ice that we lose, the more ice that we're going to lose because the more heat that's going to hit the planet and it's in, in melting and at an increasing rate and, Oh, it just seems so hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I'm just like reading through all the statistics I've wrote down in my notes and it's redepressing me all over again. <laughs> it really it really is hopeless. It does feel hopeless. And I don't know, it's just like, you know, the fact that it was it's all so recent, like all of the damage, yeah. you know, since the industrial revolution essentially is crazy. Cuz yes, the industrial revolution was beneficial to us in in a number of ways a number of important ways but it's you know just to imagine that since then it's been a slow decline into you know destruction essentially like i mean so there are a couple of really interesting graphs in this documentary Mm -hmm. one of them was talks about the level of co2 in like our atmosphere and how that directly correlates to the temperature in the atmosphere. And, and it shows that like, you know, throughout history, it's always fluctuated some. And uh, the temperature throughout history has also always fluctuated some. But we, at the start of the Industrial Revolution, there's like a slow increase at first, and then it just becomes like this exponential, like shot up in the air with CO2. And temperatures are, are quickly following that as well. Yeah. <clears throat> and then the other one that was interesting was like just the the global temperature timeline in general yeah. for more than a hundred thousand years. So like about a hundred thousand years ago is when we first started seeing like homo sapiens. Like that's when kind of like we as humans became not monkeys anymore and became humans. <laughs> it's about a hundred thousand years ago. And for the next 90,000 years after that, global temperatures were in drastic fluctuation going up and down by more than 10 degrees Celsius as frequently as every decade. So there was a lot of, you know, climate turmoil. And so we never really had any like society during that time. We were nomadic, you know, cavemen basically at best. 
Mm-hmm. And then about 10,000 years ago, that temperature stabilized and it hasn't fluctuated more than one degree plus or minus Celsius since that point until now. Now we are reaching 1.5 degrees Celsius. Yeah. And during that time is when all of our civilization developed because the temperature and the planet became stable and allowed society to form. We don't know if society can maintain itself if that temperature starts to fluctuate again like that. Right. Yeah. And just to to think like because of human interaction and stuff, we've entered into another like, what do they call it? Global epoch or something. So we left yeah. the, the stabilized period was the Holocene and now we're in the yep. Anthropocene. Yeah. Yeah. The Holocene was the 10,000 years of stability and now we are entering a new era. And we don't know, maybe maybe we'll make changes and it will just fluctuate, you know, by a degree and a half and then start to come back down and it'll be okay. But we are already starting to see so many things, like any any bad temperature or climate that you had where you were living, it's worse now. If you had droughts before, now you have droughts plus massive wildfires. If you had right. bad storms before, now you have bad storms plus tornadoes and hail. And like everything is just becoming much more intensified. Um, And that's just that's just the beginning, you know, like all of these things are just going to get worse and worse and worse every year going forward until we can make changes. Yeah. And I mean, the main scientist whose name I also don't remember, Johan, made a point of um, saying that like in order to effectuate these changes, what we really need is like the highest council. And he mentioned the United Nations Security Council, I think. Um, yeah. to enact policies and, you know, things like that in order to kick us back into <laughs> into gear, into shape or whatever. Right. Um, and it's true that, like, the only reason, the only way that those big changes are going to happen is on a sort of, you know, federal or governmental s- level. You know, right. I think, for example, like, in New York State now, they don't have plastic bags. So, like, we've reduced plastic to right. a large degree, and that was only two years ago now. I think so like we're you know efforts like that are things that will have presumably have a very dramatic impact on you know plastic production and consumption and at least maybe help get us out of the out of the um man-made I forget what it was called man-made pollutants (laughs) zone um but I mean it doesn't Yeah. uh, yeah like New York State doing that is great and I'm glad that we did it but we're just one state. We're such a small little area on the planet. Right, right. <laughs> Every place else, you know, still is, is producing and using plastic bags. We need more widespread changes like yeah. that. Um, like you said, it's great. It's great that we're doing it, but we need we need that everywhere. Right. <laughs> so, like, going to the United Nations and having them, you know, orchestrate something at a worldwide level is is a good idea and it would have some effect I'm sure but in, in my mind in like my thought process on like how real change is going to happen is like when the upper 1% of the rich people start feeling the effects of climate change yeah. when they start having like rolling blackouts through Beverly Hills because of the heat and their you know shortage of you know the, their favorite foods like avocados, stuff yeah. like that. 
once they start personally seeing the effects of climate change, by that point, the rest of the world's going to be like a complete shit show. But once they start feeling those effects, they'll start investing their billions of dollars into new infrastructure that we need to combat climate change. And, you know, then that's when things will start to get better. But I just see it getting a lot worse before that point, because we need we need rich people money to fix this problem. We do. Yeah. <laughs> like the United Nations, I'm sure, has a lot of money at their disposal and can orchestrate a lot of things with it. But we need, I, I think personally, to fix this problem, we need more than that. We need people not spending $10 billion to send a giant dick-shaped rocket into space. <laughs> and then we need them investing that into creating widespread renewable energy sources across the country so that everybody could have solar power and not be relying on other forms of electricity anymore. Right. Exactly. We're a ways away from that. Yeah, we are, (laughs) unfortunately. Yeah. So, you know, just plan on things getting worse when you think about your future and where you want to live and the type of house you want to have. Just plan on things getting worse. (laughs) Yeah. Don't get a house below sea level. Um. No, my my (laughs) husband and I were just talking after I watched this documentary about the benefits of buying land and building a house versus just buying a house because we're getting to the part where we're starting to look into into that more seriously yeah and i like the idea of building something that was like sort of climate change resistant something that was like on a hill for flooding and has a basement for tornadoes and has a sub pump in the basement in case there's really bad flooding yeah and it's from a river and has solar panels out back to power ourselves it's like maybe we should just you know do that instead because otherwise we're going to be wanting to add all these things to the house eventually right definitely yeah just keep that in mind going forward everybody (laughs) (laughs) that positive positive thought no just you know i saw something the other day on instagram and it said um, I'm a millennial, so my retirement plan is societal collapse. And I was like, oh, I feel that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's... You... What's quotes that? from the episode? <laughs> um, I don't think I wrote any quotes down, no. I did write down a few. Okay. I don't think any of them are optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> but um, okay, so I have... We are now the primary drivers of change on planet Earth. And mm. if you can picture that being said in David Attenborough's rough voice, that would be best. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have everything in Earth's system is connected. If one part of the climate process crosses its tipping point, then that will make it more likely for other parts of the system to also cross their critical threshold. So again, yeah. like the idea of like the problem is perpetuating itself. Right. Um, And then when we were talking about, um, like, at the end, he talks about the COVID-19 pandemic and how, like, so many people were shocked that it happened. But, like, anybody who's been following climate change, any, you know, climate scientists and all, like, this was very foreseeable. Like, the idea of a global pandemic was not if, it was absolutely when. And in my opinion, this was just the first global pandemic that I'm going to live through in my lifetime. But um, David Attenborough says, it's not a healthy nature that causes pandemics. Yeah. Very true. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess that's the important thing about this documentary too, is that it was kind of all filmed before the pandemic and they kind of like tagged a bit of pandemic stuff on. Because I would like to see like the effects of 
because we heard like here and there kind of like positive environmental effects um, due to the sort of halted process of the right. economy and everything else during the pandemic. So I'd be interested to see like what that's currently well, like, you know. I feel like any any of the progress that we made <laughs> has been has, reversed. Are, right. Like it's yeah. already been reversed as everything kind of goes back to quote unquote normal again. Right. <laughs> And we can see that just in the rising gas prices, you know, everybody is out flying and driving and, and going places again. So it's true. Well, I just, I like, I couldn't, what's that? So we're once again encroaching on nature. We are. Yeah. Well, and I couldn't think, uh, help but think about like the sort of irony of, you know, a lot of these things, like, for example, flying over the great coral reef or great barrier reef or whatever it's called. Yeah. Um, to check on the process, the progress of like coral death, essentially, um, oh. they're doing so in a plane. So I'm like, you're just, right. you know, kind of not really helping matters, but yeah, we didn't really talk much really at all about the coral reef, but that is another huge thing that we're seeing. And, and I think that a lot of people don't have an understanding of like what a coral reef is or how massive they are, but like a coral reef is essentially the ocean's rainforest. They, they, have so many different types of life living in them that scientists can't calculate the amount of different species that live in coral reefs, especially in a healthy, thriving coral reef and not right. one that's dying. And there are so many different species that exist only within like one coral reef. And it has evolved a very specific niche task for living in that reef. And those, of course, are the first species that die, you know, the ones that are all the very localized and specialized species like that, that you see like in the rainforests and in coral reefs. Yeah. Um, so we don't know really how many species in coral reefs were never discovered before they went extinct, basically. Right. Because how much of the reefs have died and we're seeing just an increasing rate of bleaching events of of coral reef in just the past five years. There's yeah. been three mass bleaching events. Right. And you can see oh, the guy who like is talking about a, the coral reef specialist, he gets like all choked up and, and teary-eyed when he's talking about it. It was very emotional. It was, <laughs> yeah. His name was Terry Hughes. I did write his name down, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I saw that. You, we also see a little bit of, um, you know, someone getting choked up. It was the researcher who had been studying the, I forget yeah. what they're called, sleek black cockatoos or something. Um, yeah. And, you in know, Australia. in Australia and after the the forest fires in like January yeah. of 2020, because I feel like 2020 was such a mess that sometimes we forget these things happened. But like at the beginning of the year, there was just like huge fires throughout Australia yeah. and kind of seeing the devastation of that afterwards is pretty intense. Yeah. They said that 50 million acres were destroyed during the Australian 2020 wildfires and an estimated 30 billion animals were either killed or displaced by the fires, which is, I guess, like the thing I thought that what was the most important that they talked about was how we need to change from a, into like a, a circle economy where yeah. we are manufacturing everything from recycled products, like everything that gets produced gets recycled ultimately and right. everything that is produced is made in a way that the materials can be recycled there is no more waste other than compost like food waste that would be the only sort of waste we'd be producing and that's that's what we need right <laughs> that's a huge step to imagine the entire world going to that like right. i can't see that happening 
Yeah, I also can't see it happening until it does reach a point where it's just like, you know, people can no longer deny everything that's going on. Because I feel like, as you say, like, even now, people with the means to promote change aren't really thinking about. Exactly. And once once it's undeniable to them, and they are starting to feel the effects in their own life, then maybe, but we'll see how long it takes to get that bad. Maybe it'll get that bad by the end of the year. Who knows? Yeah. (laughs) Who knows? But yeah. We don't know we're going to cross those tipping points. <laughs> right. That's true. But yeah. So if you've made it this far, I'm sorry that the documentary was so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but these are also things that we need to be informing ourselves on. We can't just live in ignorance. This is going to affect our lives. This is right. our generation's problem. Like it or not, you know, we didn't cause these problems, of course, exclusively, but we have to fix them or we're going to be taken down by them. Exactly. (laughs) So on that note, um, (laughs) you can let us know what you think about um, the state of the planet over on Twitter at NNO Podcast. Or you can send us an email at navigatingnetflixoriginals at gmail.com. And if you enjoy us talking about documentaries and ranting about the world's problems, let us know that too, because I I really enjoy watching documentaries, so I can always force Jamie to watch more of them. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But until next time, thank you, everyone. Plant a tree and goodbye.